0: John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the, fir- kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in Him. We haven't done this in a while. I think it's a fun way to start. I'm going to start a phrase, and I'm going to have you fill in the blanks out loud. Are you ready? Would you… excuse me, no, that is not (laughs) the the statement. Here's the statement. You never get a second chance to make a… pretty strong. We know that, well, it's true, And in light of that phrase, I I, I want you to consider another question. Why would Jesus introduce Himself to the world by changing water into wine? Of all the first things that He could ever do to publicly make Himself known, why? Water turning into wine? For some people, the answer to that question is improbable. For others, the answer is uncomfortable. But for all of us, the answer should be unforgettable. Let me address first the improbable. Believe it or not, there are those out there who would say, that There is no way that Jesus ever did anything that is truly supernatural. He was a good man, he was a moral man, but he was not a powerful man per se. This is called theological liberalism. It's something that started in the early 1900s very formally, but had been around for a long time before that. The interesting thing about theological liberals who are still around today, they will look at a passage like this and take it like for what it says, but try to explain it away in natural, by natural means as opposed to supernatural means. They would say, well, maybe what really happened here was these were old wine jars, and they poured the water into it, and the dregs of the old wine was at the bottom, and then all of a sudden they served this all to these people who were so sloppy drunk anyway that they couldn't tell that it was good wine. Now, I guess you could try to explain it that way, except for the fact that the text won't allow it. And another thing that is interesting to me about those who would say that such an account is improbable, especially those who would try to cast some kind of doubt on the veracity of the Gospels, why would, if this was fabricated, the author here, John, try to introduce Jesus in this way? Why would he present this as his first miracle? If somebody was going to make up a story about Jesus and try to convince other people against all odds that he was this divine Messiah type figure and he's going to make his public impression, he's going to do his first sign, do you really think that they would make his first one something that seems in the grand scheme of things so minuscule? Those who would view this text improbably are going to really struggle. This is a factual account of an actual miracle. But then there's that second group of people. uh, Just a few among us could be here who can find this text a little uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And I I want to go ahead and address the elephant in the room here because if I do not, we're going to be wondering like when it's going to come up at some point throughout the text and so I just want to get this out of the way, address it as quickly as possible and then just move on so we can get to the main point of the text. But the reason I say that this text is uncomfortable for some is because some are working from the mindset that all alcohol at any point in time is sin. And therefore, a text that says that Jesus makes wine that could, according to verse 10, get people drunk, makes a lot of people feel really uncomfortable, and I understand that. I remember being, by the way, in Bible college and and writing entire papers at the Fundamentalist College to which I attended about how this probably was not this kind of wine or that kind of wine, but I just want to address just very quickly that... Right here, in this particular text, there is no other way to understand this than to be some form of alcoholic wine. In fact, wine is mentioned over 140 times in the Bible, and truth is, it contained alcohol. You say, how do you know that? Well, scientifically and textually, Scientifically, there was no way to preserve wine. There's no refrigeration mechanism in the first century. Naturally, the juice is going to ferment to some degree. Additionally, the technology to even seal things off, as you know, would work very well to keep any type of fermentation from happening. There's no technology of that either. Now, I'm addressing that because we just need to hit the fact, like right at the start. But I want to make another clarifying point. Uh, The wine of that particular day wasn't as strong as the wine or alcohol of our own. So uh, the technology, for example, of distillation uh, was not in place. Like you couldn't actually increase the fermentation process to the same degree that you could do today when making something like liquor. And even the wine that was served, I don't know the exact alcoholic content of it, but because the Jewish people were so against drunkenness, as Christians are as well, they would regularly water it down so that it would not lead to people being drunk. So that being the case, the wine is alcoholic, but it's not as alcoholic as even wine is today. (laughs) A normal bottle of wine today, I assume, has somewhere around 8 to 10 percent alcohol value in it. This would be watered down even more so, so that someone drinking this would not feel the effects as strongly. The point is, drunkenness in the Bible is forbidden, but alcohol is not the same as the sin of drunkenness, just like food is not the same as the sin of gluttony. I hope that makes sense. Now, I want to make one clarifying point, and then we're going to move on. I'm not going to address this again. If you believe it is sin for you to partake of alcohol, you should not do it, because you will be sinning against your conscience. But that being said... Why mention it? Because I want you to understand that Jesus actually intends for the wine that these people will partake to produce joy in them. People drink coffee for what? Energy. People drink wine for what? To feel some sense of pleasure or relief. And that is a biblical metaphor. If, if you do not get this, friends, You will miss the whole point of the text. Jesus is not just serving Welch's grape juice because they're thirsty. He is serving wine because they need to be happy. This is a biblical metaphor. Psalm 104 verse 15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of man. Uh, Judges 9.13, Ecclesiastes 10.19, speak in similar ways. Talking about the the joy-producing effects of wine. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, I'll give you more references on this a little later, uh, wine is a symbol for the eschatological wedding and the dawning of the new age. I'll give you an example. Sometimes when I'm typing in on my phone and I type in like the word idea, Because I have an iPhone, all of a sudden, the word idea will change to a different color, and then at the bottom, it will suggest a light bulb. Why? Because a light bulb in our culture is a symbol for an idea. If I were to text my wife and say, I love you, guess what? The words change colors on love, and then at the bottom, you know what it tries to give me? A heart. In the Bible, if we were texting, if you would, like if you were typing in the word joy, what would be produced down at the bottom and suggested for you as an emoji would be wine. It's a symbol of joy. And Jesus here is presenting himself as the one who is the ultimate source of joy. That's the point of the text. So far, we've seen in the book of John these external verifications of Jesus. It's outsiders speaking into who he is. John introduces him as the divine son of God in verses 1 through 18. And then we had testimonies of validation and verification from none other than John the Baptist and Jesus' first followers in the closing part of chapter 1. But here, Jesus, for the first time, is going to put himself on display and he's going to do his first miracle to introduce the world to who he is. Now it's not about outside testimony, now it is about his own actions testifying to who he is. And here's his first one. This is his first impression. I hope you notice that down in, in verse 11. Look at it again. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana of Galilee. So here is his introduction to the world. He discloses himself as the source of supreme joy. And what I would have you notice or at least look for as we work our way through the story today are a few snapshots in particular which will depict Jesus as the source of supreme joy. You know, the goal of all this is, by the way, is for you to be able to enjoy him by faith. That's where we're headed today. But I'm going to do something that's going to frustrate about 80% of you. I'm not going to tell you what those snapshots are ahead of time. I want you just to listen to the story and see if you can discern some clear pictures of Christ presenting himself as the source of supreme joy. And then I'll bail you out at the end if we need it. Is that okay? I know it's not okay for some. That's what we're doing. All right, the story. I want you to start off, though, just with the flow. There's a setting that's presented here by the author in verses 1 through 2. We've got some background. And, and it's, a, it's a fun setting. It's, it's celebratory. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. John mentions the third day, just to point out the fact that this is all happening in Jesus' introductory week of ministry. This is the only time, interestingly, in the book in which he's going to be very precise with days and times and all that kind of thing, and he's connecting everything to the first week. It's his week where he's actually putting himself out there, people are beginning to know who he is, and what does he do in his first week of ministry? He shows up to a party. Now, we have a big problem. There's a cultural gap to overcome, because when you think of a wedding… You think of an event that typically lasts a couple hours on a Saturday or a Friday. But when the Jewish mind, like, would hear of a wedding, they would think of the party of the year lasting, listen to this, in most cases, an entire week long. Now, I, I get it. Your wedding was the fun one. But let's just be honest. At times, we get invited to weddings and we're like, oh. Okay, all right, I'll give up my Saturday. I'm, I'm going to wear my stodgy suit. I'm going to, you know, like, we don't, like, enter into weddings, I think, sometimes with the fullest joy that, you know, was taking place in the first century. I know that my, my wife and I's wedding, it, it was a little miserable for those who attended. It was awesome for us, but it was like a 20-minute service, and the food was horrific, the cake was bad. I mean, like it, it, yeah, we were ready to get out of there, and you could tell. You know, it, it was just like, let's get this over with as soon as possible. But first century weddings, especially in a collectivist culture like that of uh, Israel, I would say were bigger, better, and bolder. They were bigger insofar as the entire community was involved. So it says that this took place in Cana of Galilee. What we have here is Cana, based on archaeological research, has about 300 people in it. And so, more than likely, the whole village shuts down and everybody shows up for the party. Jesus lived in Nazareth. Whoever this couple was, was popular enough that he would be invited. And it would be expected, since he was by this point a professional rabbi, that his students would be able to come as well. It isn't only come uh, if you think you can make it. It is, no, we want you to come. Come party with us. So this was bigger than our weddings, which we normally only invite like the closest of friends and family and things of that nature. But I also will say that it was better. It was better because it was a true celebration. There's just something about like the way that we do things that has made weddings very solemn and dour and official. And it is, as we mentioned from Malachi a few weeks ago, a a wedding vow is a solemn thing. But Jewish weddings, for example, at this point in history didn't even need a rabbi or a priest. It was something that would actually be conducted by the family. The emphasis was not on just that one-time exchanging of vows, but the emphasis was on enjoying their new life together to the degree that they would keep with them for an entire week the people that they loved the most. So instead of like the American individualist concept of, all right, we're going to run away and go to our honeymoon and just spend time with one another… They basically threw a one-week open house party in which the people that they love the most get to celebrate with them in the beginning of their new life. And, And here's something you need to understand. These are dirt poor people. They, as husband and wife, will never experience in their entire lives the royal treatment they will get in this particular week. People would even, in the first century, rent special clothes to show up to this thing. The wife would be dressed like a queen. The husband would be dressed like a king. And they would get everything that they wanted from their guests for an entire week long. And people were just there to enjoy them and to enjoy one another. It's just, it's mind-blowing. In, some, in many ways, it was better but it was also bolder. What I mean by that was a wedding was an event of great social consequence. Middle Easterners take social events very seriously, to the, to the degree that we actually have some accounts of people's weddings, like running out of supplies, and there being a lawsuit. If people are going to take an entire week, of their lives away from, you know, their field or whatever to, to, to be a part of this party, you were supposed to provide everything. And in an honor-shame culture like that of the Near East, like, it would have been anathema to not represent you and your family in this way. This is the thing that would be talked about for a lifetime. And so, you need to get the, the, the scene that, that Jesus when he first introduces himself, is, is not at just a solemn, private, religious event. He is actually at a party. I, I want you to think of that just for a second, because it'll, it'll help capture the note of joy that I think that most people would have read here. When was the last time that you went to a fantastic party? I mean, where you just had, like, the time of your life. I've actually heard some of you talk about that. And I think it's so fun because Christians have this, like, sneaking suspicion that having fun is wrong. And so it's rare for many of us to actually just, like, have fun. And yet, Jesus says, hey, if you want to know what I'm like, here, I'm going to show up in this context. I'm going to take a picture of myself here, and I want you to see me hanging out with people for an entire week, enjoying their company. So that's the setting. A big official, a formal party, bigger, better, bolder, but there's a problem. Verses 3 through 5, a conflict, if you will. Every good story needs a conflict, it needs needs something that the hero can overcome. Well, there was a true conflict here. Look at verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, get the picture here. Remember what I told you about this being a social event with expectations. The honor of the couple is on the line. And I don't know how it happened, but it happened. They ran out of wine, and that was a big deal to them. Since many of you didn't have a a wedding ceremony in which alcohol was probably served, maybe you could use this as an analogy. You ran out of food at the reception dinner. Now, I guess you can imagine what that would be like. You know, let's say that just through the the hustle and bustle of the wedding planning, uh, you hear that, you know, a hundred are coming, and so you tell the caterer that there's going to be a hundred there. And what was actually communicated was that there are a hundred couples coming, not a hundred people. And so you plan for literally half of what was there. Can you imagine the embarrassment, just even in our own culture, That doesn't hold to weddings as strongly as these guys did, where people are showing up and half of them aren't even going to be served food. I don't know what it would be like for me as a father to actually like know that, oh man, there was this great embarrassing moment at our wedding when everybody was showing up to celebrate and half the people had to run to Burger King on the way to the party. That's bad for multiple reasons. It forever scars the day, and and so Mary is clearly involved in the planning of this as any strong group culture would have been. The, The ladies would have worked together to make this event happen. She comes over, and so she feels that this is her problem, and having constantly relied on her son, who is Jesus, and we don't know to what degree he's already been privately working any miracles, she comes to him and says, Hey, they, they have no wine. This is, you know, basically communicating, this is our problem. What are we going to do? Clearly, Joseph is out of the picture at this point. He's not mentioned. Maybe he's died by then. And so, Mary has come to depend on her oldest son, who is Jesus. And so, naturally, she comes to him and says, okay, so what are we going to do? This is a big deal. They're, they're going to be dishonored. They're going to be shamed. Uh, how are you going to fix this? And his response shocks us. please. Uh, don't, don't run through this too quickly. What does he say to her? How does he address her? Woman. <laughs> um, you hear that and you think, oh, Jesus wasn't honoring his mama. <laughs> and there is a sense in which, no, he does not honor her as his mother, but he does honor her as an image bearer. I want to explain. The NIV here gets it wrong. Frankly, it just gets it wrong. If you're reading from the NIV today, it says, dear woman. The word dear is not in the text. It just says woman. But at the same time, I wouldn't have you think that Jesus is being as disrespectful as a New York City taxi cab driver. It's not like a lady gets in the car and says, all right, lady, where do you want to go? He's not being gruff with her. I've wrestled through this for a a, a good piece this week, and I think the best way that I can explain the feel of the word woman in this particular context would be to borrow from my own southern roots and um, translate it as the word ma'am. Ma'am is uh, obviously a a sign of respect. It can be used as a way of of showing honor and deference, but it's not actually saying mom. Mom is different than ma'am, but ma'am is still respectful. There are other instances of this very word, woman, being used in respectful tones in other first century literature, and so we do well to understand that Jesus is not dishonoring his mother here, and in fact, he'll use this same term when he's hanging on the cross to say, "Uh, woman, behold, and and he speaks of John and says, basically, this is going to be your new caretaker. Jesus loved and cared for his mother, but I want you to get this. This is important. He does establish some distance between himself and his mother. Now that he is fully set on his public ministry, he is answering directly to God the Father. And she now has no more ownership over him. And so through this statement, he says, woman, ma'am. Now, again, a change of relationship through the terms. You're now a fellow image bearer. You're not be able to boss me around in this context. And then he adds this, "What what does this have to do with you and me?" That's the literal rendering. "What is this to you and me?" He basically tells her, "This is not our problem." He, he's actually indicating this is not central to my mission. <laughs> and then he adds this, what makes it more clear, "My hour has not yet come." Now, I don't have time to trace it through, but we're going to see it over and over again. This term, my hour, my hour, is going to be throughout the book of John. And you're going to find out that he speaks of his hour as the time at which he will brilliantly display his glory as God through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's almost as if he thinks, that she thinks, that now is the time that you could just kind of like let everybody know who you are. Now you can kick this thing off. We're in a public setting. Wouldn't it be great if you were to show everyone your greatness here and now? Kind of like a proud parent, you know, pulling their their kid out and say, play your flute, play your flute, everybody's here. Jesus is like, no, you're not going to treat me that way. My hour has not yet come, and then something amazing happens. She backs off and says, You know what? I'm just going to trust him. She tells the servant, Do whatever he tells you. I don't know what he's going to do, but just do whatever he tells you. There's a humility and there's a trust. Now friends, I'm pointing this out and I'm belaboring this for a reason because I see some who are here today who grew up in Roman Catholicism and you have friends and family who are still steeped in that and they would actually try to convince you in some way, shape or form that Mary and Jesus are somehow on like the same plane. I was at the the Museum of uh, the National Gallery of Art, and I was blown away by how many paintings I saw of Mary being elevated above the entire earth with like light shining from her from like the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. People really believe that, but if you're reading this first account uh, of Mary in John's Gospel, he's making it really clear that she is in no way superior to Jesus, She doesn't even have motherly authority over him at this point. On top of that, he says, my mission is more important than your whims. He kind of puts her in her place in a polite way, and then she ends up expressing her faith in him. Mary doesn't provide salvation, she needs that which Jesus provides, So, just a note, not the main point of the message, but I want you to understand what's going down here. There is a problem. We see it here, and now everything is resting on Jesus. And this is where we see some resolution. So, we've had a setting, we've had the problem or the conflict. The resolution happens in verses 6 through 10. And it's fascinating the way that John sets this up. Notice his detail. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot of detail. Note it. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So this is interesting. Uh, John is here describing things and for some reason he starts to just delve into extraordinary detail about these stone water pots, six of them holding, you know, 30 to 50, I mean, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Um, he even says what they were for. They were not only stone, but these were the things that they were using for the Jewish rites of purification. So he associates these stone water part uh, pots with religious uh, ritualism associated with the Old Testament. And then he says, fill it to the brim. So make sure that there's there's nothing else that could be put in there. Uh, it's very fascinating. So, so what is he up to? I mean, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus could have, he could have just snapped his fingers and produced a bunch of wine. Why does he take these, these stone pots that were dedicated to religious ritual And use those to do the miracle instead. Friends, I need you to to like read this like you would read Charles Dickens for a second. Assume that the author is being intentional. What is he doing? He is intentionally casting religious imagery. Jesus is going to do his miracle through this to show that he is greater than anything that the religious rituals of the Old Testament could ever provide. He has them fill it up to the brim. Basically, what you need to understand is that in the Old Testament mindset, no one could partake of the eschatological wedding feast unless they were ritually pure before God. And so anytime people were going to go and enter into like a party or enter into a religious ceremony, they had to actually wash themselves with special water that was held in special pots, and that's what would get them into the party. The the Jewish concept of of heaven, if you will, was that of this huge eschatological end-time banquet, this big wedding party. But to get in, and the Pharisees taught this religiously, pun intended, that you had to be ritually clean to get in. They thought that if they could purify themselves enough through the works of the law, that eventually God would come and start the party and everything would be good. And what does Jesus do? Right at his first miracle… He takes that symbol of religious ritual and says, hey, I'm going to do this to go ahead and produce uh, what we need in the end anyway, and that is the wine that will kick off the party. He works through that old religious symbol to actually make a statement here. And and what happens with this particular water? Uh, Continue reading in your text there. Look at verse 9. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now get what's going on. Remember, Jesus can't make a public spectacle of himself, so what does he do? He's in the kitchen back there. The servants see what goes down. The whole group doesn't see, because Jesus is not going to take the attention away from the groom and the bride. So nobody knows really what's happening except for the few people who were in the back. They send this stuff out, they draw from it. It says that the guys basically filled up the glasses and they're about to present it to the master of the feast. Now, this is a fascinating thing just for you history geeks. Uh, In those days, they needed somebody to run the party. And so the guy was literally called the master of the feast, the master of the tables, and so, at <laughs> your own parties, at uh, uh, your own weddings, you know, you hire an MC. Do you know what that stands for? Master of Ceremonies. You don't want the dry, bookish type working as the MC. You need somebody with an extraordinary personality, somebody that can get everybody involved. And in a similar way, this guy was making sure that this party was great. And so they give it to him first. He's tasting it, and he's like, What has happened? <laughs> He immediately runs to the groom and says, what did you do? He says, this breaks all protocol. Like, you've saved the best for last. This is unheard of. And then he he gives his logic. And it's very sound logic, especially if you know how alcohol works. He said, you're serving the best stuff last when most people serve the worst stuff last because everybody's so drunk anyway that they don't know what it is. I mean, he's thinking, what a waste! Now again, this isn't condoning drunkenness, but what it is actually saying is that Jesus did something that was better than anything they could have ever expected. He provides something of superior quality. Friends, even those who do not drink or taste or touch wine can imagine that there has to be some kind of difference between the $6 box of wine at Walmart and the $5,000 bottle of wine at a nice restaurant. And in a similar way, here he is saying, You've given us the best. This, is, this has blown our minds. It's so pleasurable. It's so good. It tastes good. And not only that, not only is there an excessive quality, but there is an abundant quantity. Jesus not only makes enough just to get him through, it says that it filled up these six water pots with water and turned the whole thing into wine. Now, I did some math. I constantly have my kids moaning about, when am I ever going to use math? Here's when. (laughs) All right, so you've got these water pots. They're 20 to 30 gallons apiece. All right, ready to do the math? Let's just assume 25, 25 gallons. All right, six water pots times 25 gallons, that gets us to what? 150 gallons, okay? Now, from what I understand, a normal size bottle of wine in our own culture is somewhere around like 25.4 ounces. Right now, I, I want you to kind of follow what's going down here. Uh, he's got these 25.4 ounces, and then you do that into the 150 uh, basically, friends, and this is where my math went wrong because I'm not doing this on the fly, it is at least over 600 bottles of wine that he provides for this celebration. It is in abundance. When you just think of it as, oh, well, there's just these pots and there's wine in there, you don't, you don't see how much it actually is. But when you think of 650 potentially bottles left over, this is the way that Jesus works, Friends. This is the way that he, per, he portrays himself throughout the entire gospel. I go over and above and beyond. Do you remember when he fed the 5,000? What, what was he working with? More math. Five loaves, two fishes, and, and what's the leftover? Twelve baskets. Here is a Jesus who not just scarcely meets our need, but goes way over and above and beyond. It is a beautiful thing. He is portraying himself as the one who satisfies our need and abundantly satisfies our need. And so the resolution here is just fantastic. I mean, we've seen that he makes an abundance to extend the wedding celebration and he makes it excellent to enhance the celebration. And why did this matter for John's original readers? Why should this matter for us? Look at verse 11. Here's the significance of this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice that, the first of his signs. John, as an author, is interesting because he doesn't use the term miracle. What's a miracle? A miracle is just a supernatural act of power. John Exclusively uses this word sign. In fact, this is going to be the way that he structures the entire book. The first half of the book, chapters one through thirteen, or what, or one through eleven, excuse, uh, one through twelve, or what scholars call the book of signs. It's framed around six or seven, depending on how you count them, signs. He's going to organize it. Now, sign is an important word because, like, a sign does what? It points to something. Think about the term significance. Significance. How do you spell it? S-I-G-N. Sign. The signs are actually signifying who Jesus is, and so he does seven miraculous, powerful acts to point to who he really is, what he's really like. And then chapters 13 through 21 give the ultimate and the climactic and the final sign, and that is his death, burial, and resurrection. So if you want to know ahead, go ahead and know like where this book's going and how it's structured, I just told you. But the point is here, John says this is his first sign. To use our phrase from earlier, this is his first impression. This is the way that he wants to introduce himself. And so why does that matter? what's the point? Well, the text tells us what the point is. The reason why this is the first of his signs is because he wanted to, notice this, manifest his glory. He wanted to manifest his glory. Man, that phrase, it messes me up so often because, like, it sounds so Christianese. I mean, really, when was the last time you ever used either of those words in a sentence? Manifest or glory. Glory. So to, to just avoid that for a second, I'm sorry to overdefine things, but let's just get the picture, manifest. What does it mean to manifest? Manifest means to make known, right? If, there, if the ship has a manifest, a passenger manifest, uh, what do we know? We know, like, what's in there? We know who's in there, the cargo manifest. Uh, it makes it known. Uh, so Jesus is making something known here. But what is he making known? It says he's making known his glory. Again, another Christian word, often used, rarely defined. Let me try again. Glory. It comes from the Greek word dogza, from which we get doxology. (laughs) It means actually that which makes one popular or significant. That's probably the simplest way that I can define it. In the Old Testament, it comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word kavod, which means heavy, significance, weight. That which makes something weighty, heavy, important. Uh, in the New Testament, the word dogs is often used uh, and associated with shining or brightness. We, say it would, we would say it this way, that which makes one shine, the, the glory of someone is that which makes them shine. So Tom Brady, what is his glory? His quarterbacking ability, among other things, I'm sure. But that's the thing that we most often think of. Um, for ladies… Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, what is their glory? For many of you, you would say their style. They have a good eye. Uh, for, for the classicists among us, or technically the romantics, uh, what is the glory of Beethoven? It is his music. It was not his hair. <laughs> it's that which makes him known. It's that what makes him shine. What was Jesus doing here? He was putting his glory on display. He was showing us that which makes him shine. And here's the interesting thing. This word glory is not used randomly, but it's the same word that was used back in John 1, 14, and 18, where John the Beloved said that Jesus would display the glory of God. You want to know how God shines? Look in Jesus. And how does Jesus shine here? He shows us that he is the source of supreme, divine pleasure. All good things come from him. He takes that which is plain and makes it pleasurable. He takes the ordinary and turns it into the extraordinary. He takes the insipid and he makes it excellent. This is your Jesus, your Lord, your God. His glory is shining brilliantly in this text. This is his first impression to the whole world. He wants to be known as the source of supreme joy. That's the point. And what do we do with it? According to the text, we do what those first disciples did. Look at the end of verse 11. He manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. They believed in Him. Notice this. As He presents Himself as the source of supreme joy, what is the only way to respond? It's to believe that He is indeed the source of supreme joy. I want you to understand... This, this metaphor, this picture of a wedding with its wine, isn't as prominent, I understand, for us. But all throughout the Scriptures, God portrayed the goodness of that last day as this amazing banquet with the best wine. Some, some passages that you can observe for your own well-being later, Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11... This is what, when God started his rule, it was going to be like an amazing party. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. Another is Jeremiah 31, verses 12 to 14. Jeremiah 31, 12 to 14. There's others that we looked at in the the 12 in our study of the minor prophets. Joel 3, 18. Amos 9, verses 13 and 14. But I, I want to read you one. I want to read you one in particular and then call on you to believe. If what I read in this moment sounds familiar, it should. We read it 40 minutes ago. Isaiah chapter 25. I will not read the entire passage again, but what was clear from that particular text is that God is being praised for the time that he will arrive on earth and make all the wrongs right and make all the boring things beautiful. And it talks about him eliminating all the enemies and actually setting up a safe place for his people. And then notice and listen again to what it says in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Isn't that beautiful? It's going to be great. It's going to be the best you've ever had. It's going to be the best that you can imagine. I mean, he's he's using verbs of perception, of sensing, of taste. And it's in that same passage, friends, don't isolate this from its context, where Jesus, I mean, where the writer actually says that on that same day, at that same banquet, at that same party, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. You know that passage well, don't you? Don't you look forward to that day? That's one that you feel comfortable with. You're like, yes, I cannot wait. Lord Jesus, come, wipe away my tears. I am tired of this grieving. I am tired of this sorrow. But think of the positive. He doesn't just eliminate the sorrow, but he enhances and extends the joy. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what Jesus himself is signaling that he will bring into existence. And what do we do in light of that? We believe. There are two types of belief that are here. Here's your, your practical takeaways. There is initial belief, and there is increased belief. I want to speak to initial belief for a second. But friends, for those of you who are, who are guests with us or who have been here week after week after week, and yet you have, you have yet to repent of your sin and trust in Christ, The whole point of us rehearsing these stories over and over and over again, the reason why we're hitting something as basic as the book of John is because in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to believe that he is indeed the source of all pleasure. I don't care if we hit it every week. We know that some have yet to believe. Some have yet to trust initially in him in this saving way. And here's how I know that's the fact. Just wake up for one second. I'm going to talk to you who are visiting for like 20, well, about two more minutes, and then I'll move on. Two minutes. The reason why I know that you have not believed this yet is because you don't really see Jesus as the source of goodness and pleasure and joy. I know how it goes. I've thought this way myself from time to time. All right, Christian life, okay, I'm going to start following Jesus, I'm going to carry my cross, I'm going to follow him, that means I'm going to start, I'm going to live the rules, I'm going to take this thing seriously now, okay, I'm going to kiss, you know, all my friends goodbye, I'm going to kiss the parties goodbye, I'm not going to have any fun anymore, so I'm just going to follow Jesus, and then he'll make everything better in heaven one day. So I'm serious, I'm a committed Christian, and by that I am an uncontented Christian. That means I have given up all hope of joy, and I'm just going to follow Jesus. Some of you look at Christianity as if it is the enemy to your joy, but the text is presenting it as the invitation to your joy. It is your sin and your idolatry that causes your misery. Sex and stuff and social significance and all of your best accomplishments cannot bring about the satisfaction for which you long. The person best suited ever on the planet to pursue his own joy and pleasure was that of Solomon himself, and he gets to the end of it all and says, it is vanity. And you know it's true. You get to the end of the next sexual endeavor or the end of the next accomplishment or the end of the next party, and it's empty, and you have to find the next one. And what Jesus is offering here is a superior source of satisfaction. Friends, it is your rebellion against God that indicates that you are out of line with him. That is why things are off. And it is only when you recognize that Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life before God that you could not live and died on the cross to fully satisfy his wrath for every expression of rebellion you would have ever wrought before God, and that he fully paid that as evidenced by his resurrection from the dead, which vindicated him as the Lord and the Messiah. When you understand and believe and depend upon him, then joy can begin. And I realized something. I realize this sounds plain crazy because you know what it's like to sense a dopamine hit from whatever your source of pleasure is. You can feel it in your mind, and you can't even imagine that actually trusting in this person named Jesus is going to bring about this kind of satisfaction. You're not the first person to ever think that. But can I borrow from Jonathan Edwards for a minute? Edwards basically says in one of his sermons, You can't know what you don't know. Me trying to describe to you the joys of trusting in Jesus, it's kind of like a a seeing person describing to a blind person the difference between red and blue. I, I don't have the words for you, but I am calling you regardless to trust and to believe. And Edwards points out something that I think is very interesting. You may be here this morning and actually think that, you know, I, I don't know that I, that I have this. I, I don't know that I have this hunger. I don't sense this joy in Jesus. And Edwards was wise enough to point out that the beginnings of finding such joy in Jesus are experienced when one senses dissatisfaction with the world. You may not yet fully know the pleasures that are offered you in Christ, But if you are already beginning to understand the emptiness of your self-centered pursuits, you may be on your way. And so I would encourage you, friends, take the next step. You're beginning to recognize the world will not satisfy. Would you not by faith today trust in Christ for ultimate satisfaction? That would mean confessing your sin before God, trusting in Him, upon faith in Him, saying, I want to align myself with Him and His people, That's being baptized and, and being a part of His church so other people can encourage you in that. Like, that's the, the chain of events that happens, but it all begins with trust, with faith, with belief in Him and Him alone as the source of your supreme satisfaction. This text is calling for initial faith. But it's not only calling for initial faith or belief, it's also calling for extended faith or belief ongoing faith or belief, increased faith or belief. Here's the fascinating textual point. Notice this. It says that his disciples believed in him, but if you like flip back, I'm not going to read it, but just look at the end of chapter one. It says that they already believed in him. So what happened here? It strengthened their faith. Some of you friends, most of you, have come to understand that Jesus is the supreme source of satisfaction. You initially believed in him, but guess what the text is calling you to do? To ongoingly believe in him. The reason why that you feel that from time to time sin kicks your backside is because you have been gradually deceived in believing that you would find some joy in it and not in him. And a text like this reminds us, hey, get back to the source. Stop chasing the shadows. Get to the substance. Jesus is the source of your supreme satisfaction. Friends, this will affect you in two ways. As you ongoingly are formed in faith that He is the one who produces all joy, it will help you live a life that represents Him well. It will make you a pure representative and a passionate proclaimer. What I mean by a pure representative—you are struggling with sin. Just continue to look to the sweetness of Christ. That's what our brother from Sweden last week did. Such a beautiful job at trying to exhort us. He, he gave it in, in, in such a beautiful way, and I thought that there was more opportunity for us to think through the practical applications of that. And, and here it is. I'm going to give more application to the sermon that he so eloquently delivered. If he is so great, if he is so glorious, if he's the source of all incomprehensible love and joy, what is your sin? It is empty. It is worthless. It does not satisfy. We must continue to entice one another with Jesus and what he has done for us. When we enjoy Jesus by faith, we are more inclined to emulate him by faith. Think about it. If you like your boss or your coach, don't you, don't you find it easier to do what they say? This this text makes Jesus to be not only our Lord indeed, but he is also likable. And so, we must continue to see him as a source of joy to overcome the sin of the flesh. But friends, I also pray that this would help you become a passionate proclaimer, not just a pure representative. I've said it before, say it again, I know that we all from time to time just feel uh, this this gnawing guilt in our soul that we don't share the gospel as much as we need to. But maybe it's because you're regularly forgetting that the gospel actually is good news. It's good, it's something great, it's something fantastic. Some of you are reticent to share the gospel because the only method that you know is God is holy, He hates sin, you're going to burn in hell forever if you don't come to Jesus. Every statement I just made is true, but that is not a holistic representation of the gospel. You know, there are positive aspects to the gospel too. God is good. And God is gracious, and He has sent His Son to come and die for those who have rebelled against Him, and He rose again from the dead, showing Himself to be Lord and giving hope to all those who want to follow Him for life eternal. I mean, I think sometimes in, in your desire to be faithful to the gospel, you've forgotten that it's good news. You're like, I want to make sure to get the bad news in there. Maybe just err on the side of grace and see what happens. You don't want to share the gospel because you're tired of having all these awkward conversations with family members. I think this is a quite enjoyable conversation. I mean, imagine that around the dinner table. Let's say it's Thanksgiving and everybody's enjoying the turkey and they're getting sleepy already. And that they're all so satisfied with the fact that pie's coming out and you're like, hey, you know what the source of all this even is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The same God who gave us taste buds. Is the God who infleshed Himself in the person of Jesus. And He calls us to follow after Him. That's beautiful. That's fun. Try that angle. Talk about a first impression. Our Lord Jesus is not only great, but He is good. He is not only powerful but he is pleasurable. So let us, as we approach this week, embrace and enjoy the goodness of Jesus by faith as we conclude now in prayer and song. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, who is among us, I pray that As the word has been preached that you would show us the goodness of Jesus, may we taste it, see it, hear it, perceive it, and faithfully pass it on. For those who do not yet know this goodness, bring them to faith and trust even today. And as this happens, We trust you'll be honored and worshipped. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.